Let's look at God's word. We're going to talk about the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And, and we're going to look at a passage that goes into uh, this detail that is stuff that we're just not that familiar with. And, and, and it's been a lot of that, but this goes e- into even more detail. So I'm going to read you the passage, and then we're going to glean from it some things that can affect us in our lives. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Now, I'm I'm always like, well, then why did you bring them up? uh, But it's scripture, so I'm not going to question it. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. All right? So he describes that first tabernacle. That word tabernacle just means tent. All right? So it's the tent that they carried around with them when they were traveling through the wilderness. That's what's going on here. Now, I thought about some of this stuff because... It, it, it relates to us, and I, I'm saying that, I mean by this, we often struggle, and we often think that the presence of struggle in our lives means the absence of God. I know that oftentimes we know that's not true, like I'm struggling because God doesn't like me, or something like that, or I'm struggling because God has distanced himself from me. I mean, there can be times where God allows things into our lives because we have, but created a distance. But the whole point is we can think that a lot. And, and, and it's, it's natural for us to think that way. But oftentimes, struggle is a time where God draws closer to us. I read a book a while back. It's quite a while. Practicing the presence of God. It, I really enjoyed it. And it was this idea of learning how to sense, to feel, to keep in the front of your mind that God is with you every moment of the day. We know that's true, but the problem is, if you're anything like me, I can go long, and I'm a pastor, I can go long stretches of the day and not think about God. I I can do that. Some of you look shocked. Now I've really, really told you something. But But we can do that, and to keep myself conscious of the fact that God is with me all the time is an incredible thing. I can't, I don't have it down. You know, it's not like a, but scripture teaches us that God is especially with his people in difficult times. This is one of the big parts of Christ becoming a human being and coming to earth. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it feels like to be a human being. I mean, you think about this, God created us. I mean, he created us. He knows, he knows us, but he didn't know how it felt to be human until Jesus came. And now he does. Now he knows what hunger feels like. Now he knows what physical pain feels like. Now he knows what loneliness feels like. 
Now he knows what sorrow feels like. And I mean, he may have known those before, but he knows them in a, in a way of knowing them in the flesh. He knows betrayal. You know, we always think of Judas with betrayal, and that's obviously true. But think about the betrayal that Jesus experienced. His best friends, he's in agony, and he says, will you please pray with me, please? And they're just too wrapped up in themselves to realize the significance of what's happening that night, and they just go to sleep instead. You talk about, can you imagine crying out to someone that you love and you know loves you? Please help me now. <sighs> Got too much on. I'm tired. I'm too tired to help you. Think of Peter. His denies of Jesus were a betrayal. He denies Jesus. He denies Jesus to the least important person in that society. A young girl who most likely is a slave. A young slave girl. That's the lowest on the rung in that society. It's not right. <clears throat> I'm not endorsing it. It's not right. But that's who it is, a preteen slave girl, someone with no power, someone with no standing, confronts Peter, and he wilts. He curses. He denies Jesus. And Scripture tells us Jesus saw him do it. Peter curses and denies Jesus, and he looks over, and Jesus is looking at him. Can you imagine that? To be betrayed like that right in front of your face? So he knows a pain. He knows a pain we don't know. He took the penalty of our sins. He took the father turning his back on him, something that had never happened before in eternity. And Jesus took it. So the presence of God in our lives in difficult times can be incredibly powerful. And this passage is about the tabernacle. But let me tell you, the tabernacle is all about the presence of God. That's what's going on here. It's not the temple, though. It's that tabernacle. It's the OG presence of God. It's the, it's the beginning of it. It's where it's first started in that sense. It signified the presence of God to the people of Israel in the desert. The desert is full of problems. They're in a hostile environment. It's not a place of flourishing. They're not in the Garden of Eden. There's a lack of water. It's hot. It's dry. It's hard to survive in the desert. And God says, I'm right with you. My presence is here. The tabernacle is God dwelling with his people in that environment, in those problems. So let's see what we can learn about the presence of God in our problems. First of all, tabernacle's a tent, like I mentioned. It was kind of like the temple, but smaller and portable. It's what they used in their 40-year camping trip, right? They set up camp, the tabernacle would be dead center, and then they would set up all their tents by tribe all around the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was always the center of camp and the presence of God right there in the very center of camp. So imagine walking up to, let me give you a, here's an artist's rendering. It's really not quite the scale, but the outside of the tabernacle you see there in that picture, it was white linens, white representing the holiness of the temple. It was a rectangle, Approximately, you know, they used cubits, and cubits was a measure from your, the crook of your elbow to the tip of your finger. So obviously, cubits are different for different people. So it, it, they used cubits, but it was about, we estimate, it was a rectangle, about 150 by 75 in terms of feet. 
And then you would go into that courtyard. You see that courtyard there. The first thing through the red gates, the first thing you'd see is, is an altar. It's the altar for offerings. It's where most Jews would go, uh, and they would have sin offerings, and other offerings would be offered there. And then right past the altar before the tent is a wash basin. And it would signify you'd cleanse your hands, and now you can go into the tent. But no, Jew, no Jews, only the priests could do that. This is, that altar was as far as most Jews got. So the priests won. So it was, it was kind of winnowing it down. And they would go in, and uh, they would go in, and there would be three things there. Okay, there would be this candelabra. Really, it would be oil candles. This is not something you get at, at Ikea. This is something incredibly fancy incredibly, and incredibly meaningful to them. There would be, in the middle there, those are cakes of, of bread. Those would be the table of the showbread, it was called. It was, it was the showbread to them represented... And, and we don't even understand quite all of it, but it had this idea, God's here, God's here. And then there was this, another uh, brazen altar. It was, it was an altar that was continually burning. And they would have these things in the first room of that tent, in the first room of the tent. It was called the holy place. And it was about 15 by 45, and the coverings were these brilliant, everybody puts different things up, but it's funny. Scripture tells us exactly what it is. They were tapestries. They were, they were uh, um, sewn, and they were supposed to be evidently brilliant colors and just in, incredible to, to see. So the white outside and then the brilliant colors of this tent, and there was two rooms in the tent, and the first room was where these were at, and then the second room is, uh, is where the Holy of Holies was. And the second room was where the Ark of the Covenant is. We all know about the Ark. We've all seen Indiana Jones. We all know about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark, and, and the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, is all gold. And this room that it's in, this room is 15 by 15 by 15. It's a perfect cube. It's the only unbalanced place in the whole temple. It's a perfect cube. And God said, I want that. That signifies this is where my presence is. So here's this cube, it's the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the, and it tells us, we just read, what's in the Ark of the Covenant? Aaron's staff, the ta tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, some incense. Then on top of it, you see the cherubim with their wings hanging over, and on the flat top of it was called the mercy seat. Now this is where the high priest, once a year, there would be a sacrifice for the whole nation for the sins of all of Israel. And he'd come in with like a hyssop or something with some, uh, with some of the blood, and he'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat. And he went through this, I've mentioned this before, this elaborate series of things that takes over a week to be cleansed himself, to be able to go into the Holy Holies once a year, sacrificing and dropping those droplets of blood on the mercy seat so God extends his mercy to the people of Israel. All right? Now, this is where God dwelt. Understand what God is teaching his people. He's teaching them, and this is key for us, he's teaching them in a way that they could comprehend. This is stuff they understand. We look at it and go, weird. But they understood it perfectly. It was in their language. It was, it was things that they could, could understand and comprehend and deal with. He used picture of things that they understood. And this is, 
I think is key. You know, Scripture does this all the time. Jesus was a master storyteller. He used stories that people understood. He often uses stories of farmers. A sower went out to sow, and they're all like, yeah, we know how that works. He tells a story of, 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 you know, the Good Samaritan, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. One of those three men walked into a bar stories, just like it. But see, he used people. They know those people. They know those people. They knew it. And, and he talked about them in ways that they understood. The writer of Hebrews does this. He does this. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is, um, it's, this is one of those things that, I, you know, it's small, but it's kind of cool. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, at the, end, at the end of the chapter, he says, we have this anchor for our souls. Okay, so he's using maritime language. We have this anchor for our souls because Jesus is our forerunner into the Holy of Holies. He says, he's telling us that. But here's what's interesting. In those days, okay, sailing ships, right? Understand where we're all at. They're sailing ships. It's, they're fairly simple. They're not the multi, you know, super rig things we see like of the 1800s there. They're, they're very simple. And if you're heading to harbor and a storm is coming off from land on, out onto the ocean, you are stuck. You cannot get it. No matter how much tacking you do, you cannot get into that harbor if the winds are wrong and the storm is strong. So every one of those ships, what they had was they had a boat that they would put in the water with five or six people, maybe more, and they'd attach a rope to them, and they would row into the harbor. Now, they don't tow the boat into the harbor. They get in there, and they either take the boat's anchor and attach it, or some harbors had huge rocks with a hole bored through it that they could tie their rope through. So now there's this long rope attaching the boat to an anchor. And then the boat, they pull or they winch themselves into the harbor against the wind. An anchor. And he says, we have this anchor for our souls. You know what they called the boat? The forerunner. The forerunner. We have this forerunner, he says in Hebrews 6, Jesus, who goes into the Holy of Holies. And now we're allowed in. See, he uses language, maritime language. They would have understood. We wouldn't necessarily understand it because we don't use sailing ships like that. And so he uses that, and and this is what's happening when he describes the tabernacle to the Hebrews. There's a culture gap here, but remember, there's one thing. They're just like us, and we're just like them because our sin is just as real as their sin. They struggled with anger and jealousy and lust and hatred, just like we do. They asked why in the middle of tragedies, just like we do. Their desire for meaning and purpose in life is just as strong as ours is. Their guilt and shame is just as real as ours is. Their need for the assurance of the presence of God in their lives is just as real as ours is. They are like us. They are like us. From the beginning, God longed to dwell with his people. In the Garden of Eden, they walked with God. But sin brought separation. And God gives them a tabernacle. It's a part of a plan. With the tabernacle, God set in motion this plan for humanity. To see, and, and humanity, he's, he's showing them the scope of the problem. This is why last week we talked about this. Why, do we have, why did God give them the law? He gave them the law to show them how sinful they were. The law shows us how sinful we are. It shows us that we don't make it. It shows us that we don't measure up. 
And so there's this plan, and, and God, the tabernacle is a part of God's plan of bringing humanity along, of, of educating and showing them their need for him, showing the importance of his presence in their lives, all of these things showing them. But the tabernacle had limits. In the tabernacle, sins were covered, but they weren't taken care of permanently. They were just covered. It was a temporary covering because they knew, God taught them, there is a time coming. Jeremiah 31 is one of those places. When I will remember your sins no more, they will be taken care of. There's a time coming, pointing all of this, all of this, the whole tabernacle. It points to Jesus. From the very beginning in the desert, the plan of God pointed to Jesus. And this is what the book of of Hebrews is all about. You know, we've seen this as we go through this. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. Jesus is heralding in a better tabernacle. All of these things. And so when we get, and that's verses one through five. He just describes all of that stuff, reminding them. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, for he, which he offered for himself and for the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. So now, He's saying, look, this is the fulfillment. Here's what's coming. Jesus Christ is going to fulfill this. Now, I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to look at this more next week, but I want to show you in, uh, in verses 10 and 11. Let's see here. Oh, no, I didn't finish verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing. Okay, only the most important part. The Holy Spirit was showing something. He was showing that this, he was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. He's showing them in that tabernacle, this all points to something more important. It points to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, it's all going to be fulfilled. It's all going to be fulfilled. Verse, look at verse 11 and 12. But when, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Oh, there's a better one that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Not temporary, eternal. Jesus purchases our salvation by walking into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. And Jesus is that way. That's why he said to them, I'm the way, the truth and life. He says, I'm the way. I'm the way. He's the way to enter into the presence of God. All the rules and sacrifices were all pointing to our need for Jesus and that he ultimately would fulfill it. So what did he purchase for us? Scripture says we are now, over and over, we are now in Christ. In Christ. So this is important. Let's think about this. What does this mean? Because he went to the Holy of Holies, because he purchased this salvation, we are now in Christ. So I want you to see, in Christ, you dwell in the presence of God. This is foundational in our walk with God. Sin separates, but God bring, Jesus brings us into the Holy of Holies. And it's not because God lowered his standards. Make sure you understand that. You know, um, there's an interesting story in the, in the 40s and then into the 50s um, with the monarchy in England there was this sense an anti-monarchy monarchy, uh, movement was growing, and there was this sense that they were so removed from the people. And so what they decided to do 
what Queen Elizabeth decided to do uh, was uh, we're going to have people in here. I have this Buckingham Palace with, you know, like a thousand rooms and all these meetings and all this great stuff, and it's empty 99% of the time. We're going to bring some people in. We'll bring some people in and talk to them and have tea with them. And the royal family hated that idea. They fought that idea. They said things like, their shoes will be dirty. They will smell. They're, they're not, they don't have manners. You're going to expect me to sit down and have tea at a table with people that don't know the right utensils to live with, to use? Horrifying, right? <laughs> Their reaction showed how bad they needed that. They were so out of touch, right? And one of the, of the royal family reportedly said, you are lowering our standards by meeting with commoners. All right? God did not lower his standards to meet with losers like me and you. Just so I get you. I'm not shouldering the load here. So we can come in. And it's not you can come in, but mind the clean linens. Don't get them dirty. No. We come in because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that gets us in. Our righteousness gets us in because we're given the righteousness of Christ. Now, imagine especially a Jewish person, how this would impact them. All, all your life, all your life, that place, there, that queue, that's where God dwells. None of us are allowed in. That's where God dwells. And where God is, I can never go in there because I'm sinful. The law shows me how sinful I am. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can go in now. And he, what? That's impossible. Nope, nope. The writer's saying, you can go in. Jesus has done it. God has done it. He's made a way. Well, maybe I'll just peek around the curtain. No, the curtain's been torn down. You can just walk in just bold and brassy like you belong there because you belong there. Now you belong there. The place where a person one person representing the whole nation could only go in one time a year. You can just strut in. You're allowed in. You can go in. You know, in, in chapter 8, he says this. The main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, the new tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a human being. That The other priests, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. He says that tabernacle is pointing. It's pointing. It's pointing to Jesus, and it's pointing to what's coming in heaven. So that tabernacle that we looked at a drawing of, it's a picture of a heavenly reality. It's not exact because we couldn't comprehend it if it was exact. We wouldn't be able to comprehend heavenly reality. So God gave them something they could understand. You know, you, and, and you think about it, it makes sense. When, when we think about heaven, if you think about heaven, sometimes maybe you sit around, like sometimes my wife and I, uh, we were on a trip a while back and, and we just came across around at a corner. I think we we're on like Skyline Drive or the Blue Ridge Parkway. And you come around a corner, there's just trees, 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 and suddenly, whoosh, 
there's this vista. And my wife goes, I think that's a little bit of what heaven's going to be like. We're going to get there and go, <gasps> but what are we doing when we do that, right? We're describing heaven in terms we can understand. But I want to tell you something. Heaven is so far beyond us, there'll be stuff that we just, we won't be able to comprehend until we get there. So what do we do? We talk about streets of gold, and I'm going to get my mansion someday over the hill or something like that, right? We sing, and why? Because that's all, that's, we're, that's all we can comprehend. Heaven's like super rich and big homes, because that's what we think is the good life, right? Whatever we think that is. It's beyond our comprehension. But what happens? We see the tabernacle. It's like a picture. It's not a great picture, but it points. It points to something. It tells us there's a place where God dwells. And you're in. You're in. You can go. You just start talking. And God says to all the seraphim and all the cherubim, he said, shh, 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 shh. my son, my son, Bob, or Bobby. Maybe he calls me Bobby. I don't know. He's talking to me. Shh. He's talking to me. And he gets down so that we're face to face. The Old Testament talks about us being able to speak to God face to face, right? Face to face. He says, what is it, Bob? What is it? I'm, I'm so sad. I, something happened. Somebody called me a dummy and I feel bad. Oh. You know, and even if it's like, remember with your kids, they would tell you things sobbing that were the dumbest things in the world, right? They just, and you'd kind of laugh, but you couldn't laugh. You go, oh, and I don't know if God's feeling like he could laugh. One time our daughter Reagan came home, she was real little, and uh, we didn't let our kids, we didn't let our kids say shut up to people. That was not, or to each other. That was, that was not allowed. I mean, that was just us. Maybe your kids use it all the time. That's fine. But that was just us. So she comes with one of her little friends, and she goes, Dad, Dad. And she was really upset. The man across the street, he used the S word. And I said, uh, you, you mean shut up? And, uh, and she goes, yeah, he told me to shut up. And his, her little friend goes, oh, that's not the S word. I'll tell you what that is. Like, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. You don't need to. <laughs> not, I, I know it. I got you. Right? I got you. And God, he, he gets face to face with us. This is beyond our comprehension. This is hard to imagine. We have things in Scripture that give us hints of this incredible reality that we have now and is coming. Look at Ephesians 2.6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In Christ. See? So that's, he says he raised us up with Christ and seated us because we're in Christ. Now, if you really start to think about this, this is kind of baffling. This is a little mysterious. He's saying, Paul is saying, this is a present reality in our lives. That does not fit my present reality. I am not seated in heavenly places. When I sit at the dinner table, you know, we, we know we need to get maybe a couple more chairs because every once of them, I'm afraid, is not going to be able to hold the weight of my glory very long, right? And so uh, it's not, you, you like, uh, 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 you can hear it creaking. I don't feel seated with Christ in heaven at that moment. But this is a present reality. And it's too big for us to comprehend. We struggle with that. We think where I am right now is the only place where I am. Well, let's maybe start thinking like quantum theory. Maybe I'm in heaven at the same time because he says I am. 
He says, I'm seated. I say, I don't feel like I'm seated. Here I am, I'm taking out the trash. Doesn't feel like a heavenly reality to me. But that's because I have an inability to understand eternal truths. Jesus is seated with the Father at the throne of God. And I'm right next to him. You're right next to him. How do we all fit? I don't know. But that's what the truth is. This is important. Because I can imagine, you know, every once in a while I think about, I just imagine weird things, okay? We're seated, seated next to Jesus, and there's the Father, and there's the Spirit, and there's all of us, and it's pretty cool, and Jesus is talking to the Father, and he turns to me and says, we're thinking of doing this, Bob, what do you think? And I'm like, that's above my pay grade, right? I, I'm not, uh, 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 me? Yeah, you, you. You know, you know I'm, I can really relate sometimes to the Apostle Peter because when Peter ever got in a tight spot, what did he do? He just started talking because he didn't know what to do. And I can imagine that I would do the same thing. I'd be like, well, I'm just kind of getting used to this seat. It's kind of very comfy, and I'm still a little blown away by the fact that here I am next to you, Jesus. This is pretty awesome. And, uh, oh, what's the time? Oh, man, I got someplace I need to go, and it's chilly in here. I think I'll get my coat and blah, blah, blah. And I could I just imagine Jesus would be like my wife sometimes. He's like, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. But here's the thing. That's the truth. I'm seated next to Jesus. You're sitting next to Jesus. Holy mackerel, that's pretty cool. Right now, right now, the presence of God is right here with us. So in Christ, you dwell in the presence of God. In Christ, you have unlimited access to God. You know, you think about this. The, the, the more, more, more important, the more powerful a person is, the harder it is to get access to them. You know, my favorite illustration on this is Abraham Lincoln when he was the president, and he was having a, a council of, I mean, he was sitting down with, with his secretary of state, his secretary of war, and they're talking about the civil war and how things are going and blah, 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 and the door on the side cracks open, and his little son, Tad, opens the door and goes, Daddy, Daddy. And, and I think it was Seward, they said, who, who he's like, this is important. Your dad's busy. And Abraham Lincoln says, no, no, come here, Tad. Let him in. Come here, Tad. And he leaned over and said, what is it? And Tad, and they don't even know what he said. He just said stuff to him and said stuff to him. He goes, I'll get on that. Patted him on the head. Tad ran out happy. What? That's us. That's us. God's there. And we're there. And all kinds of things. He's running the universe. He's running the universe. And we're like, ah, my finances are really tight right now. Be something, whatever. God's like, what? what is it? What is it? This is more important than that other stuff. If you want to get a meeting with the mayor of Newport News, it would be hard, but it might be doable. If you wanted to get a meeting with the governor of Virginia, it's not likely. If you wanted to have a personal one-on-one -on -one with the President of the United States, it's not happening. The more important they are, the harder it is to, to get to be with them. And Hebrews is saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. In Christ, you are seated next to God. Only, only through Christ. 
We're coming because of his righteousness. It's like Christ has got the all-access pass, and he just kept, keeps saying, they keep coming to places in heaven, and he keeps saying, yeah, Bob, he's with me. All-access, there you go. Walking into the holy of holies, the presence of God, right where God the Father dwells. Yep, he's with me. Come on, come on. I'll be like, don't touch anything, right? Don't break a candle, whatever. God is never too busy for you. God is never too busy for you. You never bother him. He's never so busy that you have to wait. Never. So in Christ, you dwell in the presence of God. In Christ, you have unlimited access to God. In Christ, we have a hope for a future with God. The fullness of our salvation is coming. The best is yet to come we will experience the presence of God untainted by sin. It's interesting when you go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, it starts describing how this is going to work. One of the things it talks about is how the new, the new heaven comes, in, comes down to meet the new earth. They come together. The dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man will be one place. And it tells us the heavenly city that's coming down is a perfect cube. Wow, that's cool wonder where that came from, right? And this is what we look forward to. The new creation, the new city that's coming down is like the holy of holies. And where man dwells and where God dwells is going to become the same place. This is what we look forward to. It gives us hope for today, and it gives us hope for tomorrow. I read not too long ago the story of a musician who had been doing the hard work of trying to become successful. And uh, he talked about taking, you know, long trips, doing gigs in little places. Sometimes only eight or ten people showed up and uh, sleeping in cheap hotels, sometimes sleeping in the van that has the sound equipment that they carried, he'd carry with him. And he talked about all those rough times of, of making, making a, a mixtape and sending it to different places to get listened to. So one day he's driving down the street and he, his phone rings. And uh, he says, he answers the phone. He says, who is this? And on the other line, he says, this is Jay-Z. And he's like, what? He goes, come to my office tomorrow. I'm signing you to a contract. Thanks. Click. His first thought was, I'm being pranked, right? But he looks up the number. It was Jay-Z. He's had his contract. He finally, he's like, yes. And he's like, yes. And then he hears, ooh. And he gets pulled over by a policeman. And the policeman comes and says, you know, you were driving a little erratically there. He says, oh, I guess I was just so excited. I'm really sorry about it. He's talking about it. And the policeman says, yeah, okay, but we just ran you, and you got like 10 unpaid parking tickets. Let, let's, let's, let's go downtown. And, and they say, can you pay the tickets right now? And he goes, no, but if you just wait. And they said, no. And they put him in jail for the night. And they asked him, what was it like? And he said, best night of my life. He says, jail's not so bad when you know you signed a record contract. He said, I asked him for paper. I asked him for a pen. I said, I got songs to write. Just grinning like a Cheshire cat. Just grinning the whole time. He said, it was great. Why? His jail cell wasn't any better than anybody else's jail cell. Now, he knew, ah, 
my desire, the opportunities to express myself have just gone huge, you know, and fame and money. I mean, all that stuff. And, and he just said, it made that night the easiest night of my life. We know what's coming. We know what's coming. Total healing. He will wipe away every tear. He'll wipe away every tear. There will be no tears, not because we will be able to tear, cry, because there will be nothing to cry over. All things will be made new. Heaven and earth will come together. We will experience the fullness of the presence of God. And knowing this gives us strength, enables us to look forward to the future, enables us to deal with the present so as we learn something that's hard to understand, the tabernacle, we see that it all comes back to Jesus. The tabernacle tells us Jesus is God's way into, is, is the way into God's presence. The lamp stands. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. The bread of the presence on the showbread table. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The altar. Jesus said, I'm the final sacrifice. And the more we look to Jesus and the more we see who he is, the more we will be able to live for him in this world. And you know what? When we talk about this stuff, you know, it can be like, oh, this is kind of different. This is kind of, I haven't heard all of this. This is something unusual. This is something new. But you know what? Your heart's going, but I want it. That's what I want. So usually I review at the beginning of the message what we've gone over. But we're going to do a super fast review. This is Hebrews chapters 1 through 9 all in a bunch of short statements. We've learned this. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the rightful owner of everything. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the remedy for sin. The remedy. Wow. Remedy for sin. Jesus is our priest and our king. Jesus is our Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is worthy of praise. Jesus is God. Jesus is the righteous ruler. Jesus is everlasting. Jesus is enthroned above. Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is my brother who is not ashamed of me. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is sent from above. Jesus is the faithful high priest. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is my rest. Jesus is the anchor for my soul. Jesus is my forever priest. Jesus is the new Melchizedek. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the way into the presence of God. Hebrews 1 through 9. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> yes. I hope you wrote that all down. So now, what do we do? We leave this place. We start thinking, the presence of God is with me all the time. Everywhere I go, he's with me every step of the way. And not only that, not only that, because I'm in Christ, he understands. I go, oh, man, somebody said that. That hurt. And he goes, I know. I know how it feels. Or this person did, that was wrong what they did. I know. I know how that feels. All the time, every step of the way, practicing the presence of God. We are in his presence all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth that it is life-changing. And Lord, help us to allow you to change us. Help us to allow the Holy Spirit to bring your scripture, your truth to bear on our hearts. And then we change from the inside out, Lord. We want that. We want that. Help us not to be satisfied with the status quo. And Lord, in all of this, we give you the praise. We, we 
seated right now in heaven, look over to you and say, thank you. Thank you. We bless you, O Lord, King of kings, because it's your name that we pray in. Amen.